Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. And then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to Neil Gross, a former police officer, professor of sociology at Colby College, and author of the forthcoming book, Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Changed Cop Culture. We discuss the recent killing of Tyree Nichols, a 29-year-old black man, by five police officers in Memphis, and what can be done to reform the police in the United States. Neil Gross, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I want to start with the killing of Tyree Nichols in January. As somebody who studies police reform and the sociology of the police, what was your own reaction to the details that have so far come to light? I think like everyone who saw the tape subsequently, I was shocked and horrified and dismayed to see somebody killed like that is what was incredibly difficult to watch. And certainly as a former police officer, I felt a good deal of shame for the profession. And I know that many other officers and former officers felt exactly the same thing. Several reached out to me after the video was released and said, things need to change. And this was not the only high profile case of a death at the hands of police even so far this year here in the United States. What should listeners understand about the wider context in which this is taking place? So the United States has a lot of police officers, as you know, somewhere on the order of three quarters of a million and many police forces, around 18,000 or so between state, local and federal police forces as compared to a much smaller number in the UK. The policing context is very different. Of course, it's very different in, in different countries. Here, police kill on average of around a thousand or so people each year. Those numbers haven't shown a lot of variation in the last few years. And one thing we know about those numbers is that black men are overrepresented relative to their share of the population in those deaths. 
And there's been certainly a continued outcry over, over those numbers. I will point out that most of the people that are killed by the police in the U.S. are armed, and many police officers will say that that accounts for a large part of what's going on. But certainly there has been a strong desire and movement to reduce those numbers dramatically and quickly. Are there important differences that strike you in the official response to the killing of Tyree Nichols? I'm thinking, for instance, of how quickly the police department has fired these officers and how quickly they've been charged with very serious offences. I think certainly as compared to what we would have seen 10, 20 years ago, that represents a notable difference. My understanding is that uh, one of the uh, reasons for the firing, one of the things that made it a little easier for the police chief there to, to move ahead was that Memphis has a policy, a duty to intervene policy, which says that police officers have to take action if they see somebody behaving in a way that violates department policy, or if they see that somebody that they've arrested or taken into custody needs assistance. And my understanding is that was at least part of the basis for the for the termination here. Now we can talk about whether the policies are, are effective or not, but certainly the fact that the department moved very quickly to take action against these officers is notable. And I think it has at least something to do with the release of the body camera footage and just how uh, shocking and, and clear it was that, that this was, that this was a, an unnecessary death. How representative of that, how representative is that of the broader nationwide approach in terms of policies like the duty to intervene? Are we seeing more of these policies introduced or is the Memphis response quite an outlier? More of those policies are being introduced. You know, one thing that tends to happen in policing is that there'll be an incident or a series of incidents and a large public outcry about those incidents. And then some new will emerge, whether it's a new policy or a new set of trainings will emerge. And then it'll quickly sweep across the policing landscape, often without much evidence that the policy is effective and often without the real sort of commitment on the part of the organization to fully implement it. I think you're seeing some of that with the duty to intervene policies. Those policies are are good in principle. And of course, police officers do have a strong duty, a moral duty, as well as a legal duty and policy duty to intervene if they see their peers behaving in a way that violates someone's rights or if they see somebody who needs assistance. That's clear. But simply implementing those policies doesn't do the trick. It requires a real change in the culture, in the mindset of police officers to get them to actually act on those on those policies and to actually try to stop their peers from doing something that contravenes the culture of the profession in a way to call out your peers. So simply implementing those policies in itself doesn't necessarily change behavior. Although, as you're seeing in this case, it, it may allow police executives a little bit more latitude to, to move quickly toward a termination in a case where things clearly went off the rails. One more view question before we dig into the details of your own research and what what does work is the national level approach here. I'm conscious we're coming up to three years after George Floyd's death. The police reform bill that was meant to lead to justice in his name is, is still stalled in Congress. And yet, as you've written, I think 50% of adults here in the United States want major changes to policing. Why is it not happening more rapidly? Why do we not see these really widespread public outcry lead to meaningful change at the federal level? It's a great question. I think that's a situation that's not unique to policing. We have lots of questions in this country about whether government policy at the federal level is representative of impulses of the country as a whole. And lots of reasons to do with the way that that voting representation here works that that explain those, that failure to to represent the the demos. I think one thing that is uh, important to note about the American context is that 
most of the significant legislation and work that has to be done to reform policing here really needs to take place at the state level. And there's a lot that has to do with local policy. Again, I mentioned there were three quarters of a million police officers. The vast majority of those are are state and, and particularly local level officers, police officers who work for municipalities or deputy sheriffs who work for counties. And while certainly federal legislation can impact what they do, and some of the provisions in the George Floyd Policing Act would have would have done that, there's really much more power at the state level. And you are seeing some states that are taking action in that regard. California has moved ahead with some significant changes in police reform, and Colorado has done the same. And certainly at the local level, you're seeing a number of police departments trying to change their tactics, trying to change their policies in ways that deal with some of these issues of racial inequality. So it's not as though there isn't movement taking place. It's just most movement that's taking place is occurring at the state and local level. And at the federal level, it's hard to get it done right now. So your new book, Walk the Walk, looks at exactly this in detail, at how police departments in California, Colorado, and Georgia have approached this issue and policies that actually do work, that, that are working. I think it would be easy to despair when we see a case after this, like this in the headlines. But what have you learned from your research about what are some of the approaches that do work? What is producing meaningful reform? The problems with policing in this country, I think, are clear and we're made aware of them on a regular basis. The number of people who are killed by police, uh, racial disparities in those deaths, and also in the use of force more generally, racial disparities in arrests and traffic stops and so on. So those problems are evident. And I think, as you've said, it's very easy for people to despair and also people for people to lose the sense that their own communities could be making progress. So I wanted to write a book that would certainly pay attention to those problems, but that would focus in on three departments that were doing things differently and doing things that were markedly better. Um, and my particular focus was on cop culture, the subculture of the occupation, its emphasis on danger, the blue wall of silence, those sorts of things. So these three departments that I chose, one in California, a city with a significant gun violence problem, one in Colorado and one in Georgia, uh, had all different approaches. The chiefs there were different politically, had very different life experiences. But in all three of those cities, the chiefs showed a real openness to changing the culture of their organizations and and were able to move them in positive directions. Not 100%, and the amount of change varied from city to city, but pushed their departments in the direction of policing that was more respectful, more equitable, more humane, more focused on social responsibility. And so I really wanted to highlight what was required for those cities to be successful and what it was like to be an officer on the ground in those cities. What are some examples of some of the things that these departments have tried? Sure. One of the examples that comes to mind immediately is a city called Longmont, Colorado, which is not too far from Denver near Boulder, Colorado. And I first got interested in Longmont after I had a conversation on the phone. And I remember very clearly talking with the chief there, now retired, a gentleman named Mike Butler, who told me on the phone that in his view, it was really important to break the ties between police departments and the criminal justice system. And I was shocked and didn't understand what he was talking about and thought I, I really had to go there to figure out what he meant. And over the course of many years as the chief at the Longmont Police Department, Mike Butler, who in many respects more like a professor than a police chief, tried to change around the way that policing was done in the city. The city, like many, had a history of, of racism in its police department. But beyond that, Mike Butler was also very concerned about the rise of incarceration, the reliance on arrest as a way to handle all problems. So I'll give you 
one example. He moved his department toward policy of restorative justice. And of course, that's something that is done more widely, practiced in, in, in many countries. The idea is that instead of putting someone in jail or in prison, you bring them together with victims if the victims are willing in a circle. You ask them to engage in some kind of restitution. There's an educative component of it. And the idea is that you're bringing justice in a different way. Many places have restorative justice. Typically, it happens after an arrest and in lieu of prosecution, or sometimes it even happens further down the line after someone's being released from. Mike took a different approach along working with activists in Longmont, peace activists. He developed a system that allows Longmont officers to refer offenders to the restorative justice program in place of making an arrest. And the officers, it took them a while to get on board with this, but many of them are really happy that they are not required to arrest somebody who handcuffs a cheap piece of jewelry, for example. So it was an example of movement toward more humane policies and in other respects as well, a use of force, a real focus on de-escalation. That department is just markedly different than others, others around it. I think a really shining example of how you can move the needle on police culture. Some of the other elements you mentioned there, that the idea of this blue wall of silence how can police forces go about tackling that? How difficult is it to change that culture? It's been a feature of police culture in this country for many years. And in fact, it's a feature of police culture in, in many countries. And I think it stems from the very nature of the job. Police, even though they are respected in many communities and their services are welcomed, police have always been something of a pariah occupation. They are socially isolated. If No matter how much one respects police officers, it's often the case that people don't want to be friends with police officers because if they do something wrong or speed or drink too much, they worry about the, the legal consequences of that. And uh, the police also uh, are involved in a world that um, they feel most people don't have any knowledge about and don't want to have any knowledge about it. The police have tended to band together. Cops are often friends with other cops. And, and all that is is understandable. But it creates a sense of group loyalty, a sort of in-group mentality that I think can be can be dangerous. And that's exacerbated by the way that police forces tend to organize. It's very common in the U.S., for example, for police officers to not live in the cities that they police for many reasons, but among them, the fear that if they do live in the cities where they're police, where they police, they'll maybe be followed home, something like that. There are concerns about officer safety. And that creates all sorts of difficulties. Among other things, it uh, makes people, police officers come to think that, that everybody in the community is just like the people that they handle, deal with on calls when, of course, the people that they, the police come in contact with on calls may be the people experiencing the most problems. So it's hard to break that blue wall of science. But I will say that anything that officers can do, that police chiefs can do to get their officers into the community in a different way is helpful. In Longmont, Mike Butler for years spent weekends walking door to door with a good friend of his, an activist, and they would just knock on doors and say, I'm Mike Butler, I'm the police chief. Tell me about your neighborhood. Tell me which, what's going on. And he has asked his officers to do that. The more you can get officers out of cars, out of emergency situations, just talking to people in the community, the more you can get officers integrated with the community, the more you can hire officers who do live in the community that you work, the more that blue wall of silence, the more those social barriers between police and community members begin to fade away. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just 12 pounds. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. 
twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You have also served on the other side of this. You have you've been a police officer yourself and you have written that when people are asking how can we change the police, how can we reform the police, often you have said to your students consider becoming a police officer yourself. What was your own motivation? I think you, you've written that was partly driven by this idea that if more people with progressive values serve as police officers, that will in itself lead to a form of change. I think there's a myth or a stereotype that most people go into policing because they're power hungry or something like that. And the research is very clear that most people go into policing for idealistic reasons. They want to help their communities. They want to reduce crime. Those were certainly my motivations. I served as a police officer for a pretty short time back in the early 1990s in Berkeley, California, near San Francisco. And I'd grown up in Berkeley. And this was a period when the crime rate in the East Bay was very, very high. And my interests were twofold. One, I wanted to make my community safer. And then two, I was also very concerned about injustice and inequalities in the criminal justice system. And I wanted to lend my hand to, to making things better. And I think that's not an uncommon motivation. It's hard to change policing. It's hard to change police culture. But one way that you can start to do that is by bringing different people into the occupation. More you can bring in folks who really are 
reform-minded, the better. A recruiting slogan currently of the Detroit Police Department is, is be the change. And I think that can be a really effective motivator. Simply changing out who's in policing may not make a difference, but it can't hurt. Are there examples you see of other countries who are tackling this successfully? Preparing for this interview, for instance, I, w- I watched a recruitment video from the New Zealand police whose slogan was, do you care enough to be a cop? Are there examples you would point to elsewhere in the world of successful examples of police reform? So I said earlier that simply changing out who goes into law enforcement isn't necessarily a total solution, but it does make a difference. The more that law enforcement looks like the communities that it that it serves, the better. In the United States, for example, there's been quite compelling evidence that while in every case it's not true, that on average, if you have a department with more officers who are people of color, more female officers, that levels of force are lower on average, that... that uh, incidents of low-level arrests, particularly people of color, go down. So those kinds of things can make a difference. And I will point out that policing has historically been a very male occupation, absolutely dominated by men, and also a very masculinist occupation. And there is actually strong evidence that the more women you get into law enforcement, in many respects, the better the outcomes. And so there have been some countries, for example, in Scandinavia currently, that are seeing large proportions of their new entering recruit classes being women far higher than in the past. So I think any of those efforts at, at diversification and making sure that police departments are representative of the community, all those are to the good. Is there also an issue of the kind of roles, the kind of tasks that police officers are undertaking? One thing that keeps coming up after police-involved killings here in the United States, for instance, is whether police should be doing traffic stops, whether it makes sense to have people carrying out these tasks or whether that could be done by technology or done by a different type of service. Do you have a view on that? Traffic stops are certainly a very volatile situation. We know that no small number of the of the police killings that we see on, on the media stemmed from traffic stops. And it's also the case that traffic stops are, are quite dangerous for those in law enforcement, not a small proportion of officers who are killed every year in the United States are killed in the course of traffic stops. Particularly complicating the situation, though, is that though traffic stops are dangerous for law enforcement, um, law enforcement has also been taught historically that traffic stops are even more dangerous than they are. When I was going to the police academy back in the early 90s, I went to to a police academy near Sacramento, which is the, the capital of California. And it was an academy where the California Highway Patrol also trained. And I remember a poster on the wall of the gymnasium that we passed by every day. And it said, don't let them kill you on some dirty freeway. And that was the motto that was impressed upon us. And the notion was that traffic stops are extremely dangerous and that you have to bring a kind of heightened awareness to them. So some people have talked about this in terms of a warrior mentality that many officers in the U.S. have. And the idea that you have to think of every traffic stop as a situation in which potentially your life is in danger brings a level of intensity to, to traffic stops that actually may make them more dangerous because it can end up needlessly escalating a situation. So I am in favor of using more automated technology to engage in traffic enforcement. I have to say there have been a number of cities now that have prohibited officers from doing low-level traffic enforcement. That I'm leery about. Certainly in this country, we've seen a fairly significant increase in, in deaths to do with automobile accidents uh, since the pandemic. It's, there's the incidence of, of speeding seems to have gone up and of reckless driving. So the idea that we can simply not enforce meaningful traffic safety violations seems to me to be a non-starter. But there are other things that we could do. For example, in the United States, it's quite common 
for police officers to to stop cars because there's a very minor infraction, a, a something obscuring the rearview mirror, for example. But the, the real reason for the stop is that the officers suspect that the drivers of the car are up to no good and want to see what's going on. So these are called pretextual stops. You're stopping the car on pretext. Those are bad. They are opportunities for racial biases to, to play themselves out. And we know that pretextual stops are those in which, you know, for example, black people are more likely to be stopped, even though the rates of contraband being found in those cars are far lower. So yeah, I, I would favor ending pretextual stops and making there be policies in place in police departments that would severely restrict them. But yes, in general, I think something has to give about the way that we do traffic enforcement in this country. Clearly, it's not working very well. Final, possibly quite unfair question, but just given how bleak the current situation can look, how horrific the details that we're hearing about this latest killing are, are you hopeful that there will be change, that that the kind of examples that, that you've seen, the police chiefs that you've met, is there reason to be optimistic that where we are now is a low point and that the future is going to be a better picture? Yeah, it's, I guess I'd say two things in response to the question. First of all, I think it is important to bear in mind the larger context here. So I mentioned there are some three quarters of a million police officers in the US, upwards of 55 million contacts with the civilians every year. And the vast majority of those go as policy would dictate that they should go and as probably most people would want them to go. That's not to minimize the significance of these really horrific incidents we've seen. So the police operation is is very large, and we also have a very significant problem in the country with, with violent crime, stemming in no small part from the, the wide prevalence of handguns and as more systemic issues around inequality, poverty, and so on. So the police enterprise is very large, and these issues are serious. Secondly, yes, I think we are on the verge of seeing some significant progress. Remember, being at a conference before down in New Orleans. And New Orleans is a city that has historically had a very problematic police department, was put under a federal consent decree, forced to change by the Department of Justice after Hurricane Katrina. And so this was now quite a few years hence, and New Orleans had really turned itself around in important respects. And so police leaders from across the country were there, 50, 60, 75 leaders in a room. And the one of the deputy superintendents, deputy chiefs at the time, in New Orleans, remember he said, we've reached a moment in policing, this was before George Floyd's death, where if we don't change policing ourselves, other people are going to change policing in a way that we in law enforcement won't necessarily like. And I think there's a strong recognition, especially on the part of chiefs, but also on the part of many officers, that though the police are succeeding in many respects, clearly when it comes to generating public trust, when it comes to avoiding these incidents of, of brutality, of excessive use of force, of killings that have no, no moral or legal justification, in that respect, the police institution isn't succeeding. And so many departments are trying to change. The question is, will they continue to change? Will they continue to do the right thing? Will communities and politicians give them the support that they need to change? I think that's the real question. It's easy to to worry. It's easy to despair. It's also easy to entrust that a police chief will make changes, but those changes don't amount to much without real engagement from the community. So I'm hopeful, but guardedly optimistic, I would say. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap this up. So let me say, Neil Gross, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. This week on our Audio Long Reads podcast, we're featuring Bruno Masayash's exclusive interview with Volodymyr Zelensky's advisor, which lays out how a Ukrainian victory would unfold. To listen, just search Audio Long Reads from The New Statesman, wherever you get your podcasts. 
This has been World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and please rate us five stars. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back later in the week. I'm Katie Stallard. Thanks for listening and until next time. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.